I was intrigued this week to read that they found the earliest fragment of a gospel, apparently, intriguing story. An Egyptian mosque had been dissolved down, separated out, soaked off the glue, made out of papyrus and mush and stuff. And there, in the stuff that made it various documents, and one of them is thought to be a fragment of Mark's Gospel. And if it is, uh, uh, yet to be confirmed. But the thinking is that it dates to about 90 AD, which uh, makes it earlier than John Ryan's fragments. By the way, it is fascinating. Peter, we're very pleased to have you with us to help us think through what reliable evidence is. And this follows on really from last week where we we started with the basic, does Jesus exist? And of course some of the questions following up on that were then, yes, okay, the New Testament may be reliable when it tells us that Jesus existed, but how much can we trust the portrait of Jesus that it gives us? How much of the detail we can trust? And of course we go on through uh, the course, we'll be looking at more and more of the detail. What I want to do with this uh, today is to look at some of the the standard so-called criteria of authenticity that historians will use uh, to say that certain uh, elements of uh, a witness that we have in a text or whatever uh, can be relied upon, uh, quite apart from assumptions about the general reliability of that text. Uh, So I'm not going to be assuming that the New Testament is even generally reliable in what it tells us about Jesus today. I'm simply going to use some standard historical criteria uh, to show that you can piece together an outline of the Christian view of Jesus' life uh, using data uh, that is only data supported by these uh, criteria of authenticity. And I've only got time to look at uh, some material from the New Testament highlighted by some of the criteria of authenticity. Namely, particularly, um, the idea of early sources, the better, earlier the better, eyewitness sources being better than non-eyewitness sources, Uh, multiple sources, particularly multiple independent sources saying the same thing, uh, being a a mark of reliability, and uh, so-called embarrassing stories, the criteria of embarrassment. Now, using these, these, these are positive criteria. You can't use these criteria to rule out the historicity of anything. You use them to rule in the historicity of things. Using these positive criteria to validate specific historical claims. That is compatible, of course, with thinking that the sources containing those claims are generally unreliable. But... Of course, the greater application you find these criteria having to a set of sources, the more that tends to indicate the general reliability of those sources. So you see that the relationship uh, between the idea of general reliability and specific reliability picked out by these claims. And the more you do that, the more you come to trust the general reliability of, of the sources, of course. Now, um, this is a chart of the approximate dates of the New Testament letters, uh, which for many scholars predate uh, the Gospels, or at least lots of them uh, predate uh, the Gospels. I put here the crucifixion at uh, AD 33, and you can see James here at about 48, all the way through to to Revelation towards the end of the first uh, century. These give us multiple early 
and embarrassing testimony uh, about Jesus. Ben Witherington notes that Jesus was prayed to and worshipped from the very beginnings of early Christianity, which was something that Jews, and of course all the earliest followers of Christ were Jews, would only do if they, they really seriously believed that the person was part of the divine identity, was, was divine. The earliest Christology that we get from these letters, and indeed sources within these letters, is a, is a so-called high Christology, the, the old sort of German liberal idea of a, a long developmental process when a human Jesus is gradually over the generations of stories being told about him transformed into a divine figure is bunkum. Uh, that's a technical phrase that we like to use in New Testament studies. Uh, the undisputed, so-called undisputed letters of Paul were written before the end of the 50s AD. They confirm at least 31 facts that are recorded in the Gospels interesting to note and they demonstrate that a concept of a divine Jesus was already present within 16 to 20 years after the crucifixion J.P. Morland notes that Paul's letters contain a number of creeds and hymns and uh, Peter May will be specifically talking uh, about the Corinthians uh, passage in another one of our talks Um, these passages often translate easily back into Aramaic and they show features of Hebrew poetry and thought forms and so on And this means that they they came into existence while the church was heavily Jewish. And they became standard recognized creeds and hymns that he's promulgating out to churches in the Greek world, the Greco-Roman world, uh, standard creeds and hymns, well before Paul quotes them in the 50s AD, which pushes them back very early. These creeds and hymns testify to the death, the resurrection, and the deity of Christ. The idea, says J.P. Morland, of a fully divine, miracle-working Jesus who rose from the dead was present during the first decade of Christianity. The 1 Corinthians uh, 15 creed, just a number of quotes here that you can see on your page from atheists. Uh, I'm, I'm not here putting forward a view that he's from conservative fundamentalist scholars, uh, This is uh, people like atheist Gerd Ludman, who says the elements in the the tradition are to be dated not later than three years after the death of Jesus, when you're looking at the creed quoted in 1 Corinthians. Atheist Michael Golder talks about it coming from a couple of years after the crucifixion. Um, Jewish scholar Pinchas Lapid agrees that this creed in 1 Corinthians might be considered as a statement of eyewitnesses. It's formulated from eyewitness testimony. Robert Raymond, again, says it's based on early Palestinian eyewitness testimony. Talking of early eyewitness testimony, he also appeared to me, says St. Paul. Paul claims that he is himself an eyewitness to the resurrected Jesus. And we get that in Corinthians and in Galatians and also reported independently by Luke in Acts. And, of course, that claim is given the stamp of sincerity, if not necessarily truth, by the fact that Paul was prepared to be martyred uh, for that claim. As the then atheistic Antony Flew observed, the evidence of Paul is certainly important and strong. The evidence that he hadn't been previously a believer is about as clear as it could have been because he was an active opponent I think this has to be accepted as one of the most powerful bits of evidence that there is, talking about evidence for the uh, early views of Jesus and particularly the, the resurrection there.
Paul, uh, Timothy Paul James, New Testament scholar, says that the best evidence that we profess, possess does suggest that the sources for the four Gospels were a tax collector named Matthew, Simon Peter's translator Mark, the physician Luke, and a fisherman named John. Mark Robert notes that in recent years, many have come to believe that the first and fourth Gospels reflect the memory and the perspective of Jesus' own disciples. And he puts this very carefully. He says, Matthew and John may not have been the ones who finally put pen to papyrus, but they, their memory and their authority stand behind the Gospels that bear their names. And Richard Bockham's excellent book that I recommend to you, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, goes into fascinating detail on his argument that the Gospels embody the testimony of eyewitnesses. Not, of course, without editing and interpretation from the final authors, but in a way that's substantially faithful to how the eyewitnesses themselves would have told it. So here's a a chart comparing the New Testament Gospels as ancient history to other standard works of ancient history. Uh, looking at the reported events that are being talked about, when that report about those events was written, what the, the, av- the gap between the events and the report is, and then this is the average lapse, the average gap between the events happening and being written about in ancient history. Now, most scholars would accept the Gospel dates ranging from about 60s to 90s. Uh, I'm prepared to argue for earlier than that, with Mark beginning at 49 <laughs> Luke 61, Matthew 61 to 64, and then John's in the the 90s, but perhaps based on a first draft from uh, pre-70s. But at the very least, talking about gospel sources, as we were last week, and I'll mention them again in a minute, elements of the sources of those gospels, Q, L, M, must have existed within about 20 years of the historical Jesus. So there's a, a chart that gives you a bit more of a pictorial view of this. Plutarch's a bit of an outrider here. The average gap between the events he's talking about and when he's writing it is over 300 years. Um, but look, Josephus, Antiquities, the War, Suetonius, Tacitus, all of those have a, a bigger average gap between events and report than the New Testament Gospels do. Mark is right up there with Xenophon, Thucydides. Pliny is very close. But, you know, it's doing well in terms of the way ancient history comes to us. Here's the, if you took the liberal datings of the Gospels, the 60 to 90, they, they'd all fall within here, and you can still see, well, that doesn't make much of a difference to that information. Here's the, the sources. We have about five, at least, independent thors, sources, it's thought, uh, behind the Gospels, dating from around 30 to 60 A.D., Perhaps even elements of Q particularly may have been, some scholars think, written at the time. Uh, And then there's a relationship between the Gospels with uh, Matthew and Luke both drawing upon Mark's information and John independently, perhaps having a signed source pre-70 and so on. Which again, at least elements of these sources existed within 20 years of the historical Jesus so if you look at the sources behind the Gospels and look at the average gap between the events and the report, they'd all be right there at the beginning of the chart. Multiple sources. This is the, the common sense idea that the more sources, the more witnesses, the better. That which appears in more than one Gospel or more than one Gospel source 
or in more than one form, so perhaps uh, in a straightforward report and in a hymn and in a creed uh, and in a parable or something. If that if some, bit of information appeared in all sorts of different literary forms, that also counts. <coughs> well, with that criteria in mind, think of Jesus' miracles. Barry Blackburn says the miracle working activity of Jesus easily passes the criterion of multiple attestation. Mark reports no fewer than 18 miracles. Q, there are two. Matthew's special special source, M, have three. Luke's special source has seven. John has six. In other words, you've got five independent sources reporting about 40 miracles of Jesus, says Paul Bennett. Barnett, sorry. Here's a a chart which you can look at at your leisure again from the, the sheets. But if you think about categories of miracles, so nature miracles, healings, exorcisms, bringing back people from the dead, not only are all four categories of miracle attested by multiple early independent sources, specific miracles of Jesus are attested by multiple early independent historical sources. And that includes the eyewitness reports from John and Matthew stroke Q. The outline of Jesus' death and resurrection can be established from the multiple independent and early testimonies within the 1 Corinthians Creed, Mark's pre-Mark and Passion Source, and two of the sermons recorded by Luke into Acts. Of the speeches in Acts, James Dunn comments that there are indications that Luke has sought out much earlier material and incorporated it into the brief formalised expositions that he attributes to Peter, Stephen, Paul, etc. Bar Ehrman, known as something of a sceptical New Testament scholar, uh, concurs. He says the speeches in Acts are particularly notable because they are in many instances based on oral traditions. These speeches incorporate materials from the traditions about Jesus that existed long before Luke put pen to papyrus, says Bar Ehrman. And again, from all four of those sources, you get Christ died, he was buried, he was raised, he appeared. And then you get multiple sources for the resurrection appearances, as tabulated here. Um, I've put references to Mark chapter nine, 16, 9 forward in brackets, because that text doesn't appear in the earliest manuscripts. But note that Mark sixteen seven, which does appear in all of the early manuscripts clearly implies at least one group resurrection appearance. Jesus was reportedly seen on at least ten occasions, in eight of which it's additionally reported that people heard and or talked with Jesus. On at least two occasions it's reported that people touched Jesus. At least seven of the reports recurrent occurrences to groups. Uh, It's a little fuzzy, but five to seven Appearances, including three to six group appearances, are reported by multiple sources, multiple sources for group appearances. We've got multiple independent sources for at least two individual and three group appearances. The criteria of of embarrassment, again, common sense idea, people don't tend to tell stories against themselves that put themselves in a bad light if they can avoid it. They certainly don't tend to tell stories that would get them killed, ostracised from their local synagogue, etc. 
Graham Stanton uh, says, traditions which would have been an embarrassment to followers of Jesus in the post-Easter period are unlikely to have been invented. Crucifixion, culturally speaking, is very, very embarrassing. As you can see from this interesting bit of graffiti from the Palatine Hill in Rome, dated to about 200 AD, with the inscription, Alexaminos worships his god, this donkey-headed figure who's got himself crucified, what an idiot, what an ass he's made of himself, but who's making even more of an ass of himself, well, it's Alexaminos, who's worshipping a crucified guy. I mean, what's that about? That's ludicrous. So why would Alexaminos go to the bother of doing it? And certainly you wouldn't go to the bother of making up a story in which your religious leader is a crucified guy. Baal Ehrman, again, it's highly improbable that the earliest Palestinian Jewish followers of Jesus would have made up the claim that the Messiah was crucified. Uh, that is not their Jewish idea of what a Messiah was meant to do. Um, they thought he was going to kick the Romans in the butt, not vice versa. And indeed, interesting, think about this, Rob Bowman says, crucifixion was a horrible, shameful way to die. It wouldn't have occurred to anyone in the first century to invent a story about a crucified man as the divine saviour and king of the world. Something extreme and dramatic must have happened to lead people to accept such an idea. Can you think of something that would fit the bill? Um, what about the empty tomb? Um, He's a Vermez, again, not a, not a conservative scholar, uh, says the evidence furnished by female witnesses had no standing in male-dominated Jewish society. If the empty tomb story had been manufactured by primitive church to demonstrate the reality of the resurrection of Jesus, one would have expected a uniform and foolproof account attributed to patently reliable witnesses, by which, of course, he means blokes. <laughs> Culturally speaking... This uh, picture here is from uh, women visiting the tomb of Christ in the wall painting of the, uh, the baptistry at uh, the Dura Europos house church dated to about 235 AD. And the resurrection appearances, of course, include appearances to women. Indeed, the first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus are said by the New Testament to be women. And that's said in independent sources in Matthew and John. Again, that was an embarrassing thing, culturally speaking, for them to say. Why did they say it? Because that's what happened, one might think. So in sum, the, the general outline of the Christian view of Jesus, a Jesus who claimed divinity, who worked miracles who died on a cross, who was resurrected, leaving behind an empty tomb, and who appeared on multiple occasions to multiple individuals and groups of people, including not just people who had already been following him, but people who'd been opposing him. Paul, you could talk about James as well. is supported by multiple early embarrassing, independent sometimes, and eyewitness sometimes, sources. Thank you.
Thank you very much. Thank you, of issues which really are fundamental to Christian belief. The historic case doesn't stand up, Christianity doesn't stand up. So who would like to use the time to a few minutes, ten minutes of questions? <coughs> I found it interesting you didn't uh, go quote, for example, Roman sources about the, the life of Christ. Mm. Yeah, I, I could have um, gone to extra-biblical yes. um, sources, but that could take a whole other <laughs> talk. I've got 20 minutes, so no, yes, absolutely. You can, you can give an outline of the life of Jesus from 1st and 2nd century non-Christian sources. Um, and don't also discount the value of early 2nd century Christian sources like Ignatius and Irenaeus and, and so on as well. Um, you know, guys who were martyred for their belief in Jesus um, because they heard about Jesus from people who know Jesus. Um, it's not that they had read loads of the Gospels or whatever. They may have known one or two, but they didn't value the his, you know, written sources as much as the living and abiding voice, as it was called at the time. Um, so these guys were you know, apostles of apostles. So, and on, on the basis of what you know, St. John and St. Peter had told him, Ignatius is willing to go and be tortured red by lions or, or whatever. Um, so that's an interesting source to go to as well. You could do a whole talk on that. Yeah, absolutely. To be fair, we should run these same tests against some of the other religions. Mm. I know, I mean, we don't have time to do that, but I'm assuming <laughs> that you would say they failed. No, I, well, I don't know how much this might come into into a Fred's talk following me. Following me, but uh, <laughs> so I don't want to, yeah, preempt Fred's talk. But um, yes, absolutely. I mean, you, you want to apply where you have historical claims being made that matter to the to a thought tradition. You want to be even-handed in your application of, of the tests. Um, as people have said, it's somewhat different with with like Judaism and Christianity and certain elements, at least, of, of Islam, because you're talking about historical revelation claims. Uh, if you're talking about you know, Confucianism or Buddhism or whatever, it, it's more of a sort of life philosophy, ethical system. Um, it doesn't particularly matter whether Buddha was a historical character or not in the same way. You know, if, if you could show, so we were talking about last week, that Jesus never existed, <laughs> then you would think, well, Christianity is wrong then. And it's not quite the same with all thought systems, because they're not all historically based revelation claims. But certainly where you're dealing with historically based claims, you want to have an even-handed, fair-minded uh, application of that same kind of criteria. Yeah. You mentioned like the multiple uh, testimonies mm. of the gospel, but that's assuming that all scholars think that those passages are reliable in themselves. Is that right? No, no. Yeah, thank you for this, because this helps me clarify. So, even working on the assumption that the, say, the four gospels are generally unreliable sources, what the criteria of authenticity approach does is says if we have bits of information that we that we can piece together that 
pass through this kind of set of sieves, one or more of these sieves, and the more the better, then we can think to ourselves, well, that bit of information is probably reliable. Um, because it's quite unlikely that independently of one another, a number of different sources would all come up with the same idea. So if you find independent witnesses all saying the same thing, they're probably right. Um, even if the rest of what they say is unreliable. So here's, here's an analogy. Think about the, when the Titanic sank. You had early on the ground eyewitness testimony you know, soon after to the fact that the Titanic sank. But the eyewitnesses disagreed amongst themselves as to whether the Titanic had gone down in one piece or had broken in two, had snapped in two, and then sank. So they, the eyewitnesses contradicted each other. Uh, that was a real con- Either the ship snapped in two before sinking or not. Um, but you don't therefore say, oh, well, so the ship probably didn't sink. You say, well, okay, they don't disagree about this peripheral detail, but they do both independently, one another, agree. You know, maybe we pick them up in different lifeboats afterwards, so on, agree on the central fact. So similarly, if, if, you know, Matthew's Gospel and John's Gospel tell you the same thing, you know, Jesus was crucified under the orders of Pontius Pilate, you think to yourself, well, yeah, that, that probably happened. Um, even if you think that in other, lots of other detail, they're you know telling porkies or um, or are just inaccurate through incompetence or, or whatever, and particularly if you find a bit of information that is that is witnessed to by multiple independent sources that are also early sources that are also quite embarrassing in the way that they're saying you know Mark's gospel with. The testimony of Peter behind it, of all the Gospels, is the Gospel that puts Peter in the worst light. <laughs> it's the one that dwells the most on him denying Christ and being thick and <laughs> not getting it and rushing in where fools fear to tread and all of that. Um, so you, get, you start getting the idea, oh, well, he's, he's probably quite an honest reporter, this guy, because he, he keeps telling stories against himself. And why would all these in- independent Jewish sources make a claim about worshipping a, a crucified man. And what could have happened in history so that Jewish people in that culture could have had some, some other background beliefs that made them comfortable doing that? What would that have been? And so on. And so you start piecing together these bits of information and say so you can get an outline of the, the general gist of the Christian view of Jesus through that methodology quite apart from thinking that the Gospels are generally reliable. But, as I said at the beginning, because time and time again you find the Gospels and the New Testament letters and so on passing these criteria and saying the same information as you know, non- non-Christian sources, Greco-Jewish sources and so on, you, the more that that happens, the more you start thinking, oh yeah, these sources are pretty generally reliable as we can, in the ways that we can test them historically, you know, uh, and by archaeology and all sorts of things that we could do whole separate sets of, of talks on. Yeah. You won't need to read much in this subject to come across the Jesus Seminar. The Jesus Seminar was a group of sceptics mm. who were using just these criteria to sift out what can we really know 
given that this is all highly unreliable, is there anything here that's substantial? Yeah. Um, this is where yes. these things really yeah. So that's why I was, I was quite keen to quote from people like Gerd Ludemann and, and Bart Ehrman and Michael Golder and, and, and so on, um, from scholars at the sceptical liberal end of the New Testament scholarship um, who admit those facts because, simply because they, they pass so many criteria um, that if you wanted to reject them, you'd also have to reject the rest of ancient history. Um, so things like the crucifixion yeah. and the trial before Pontius Pilate become two of the most clearly defined mm, mm. historically. Uh, yeah, yeah. The, yeah. the fact that Jesus was the fact that Jesus was crucif- crucified has been called one of the most secure historical facts from ancient history. I think it's something like eleven or twelve non-Christian sources mention the death of, of Jesus, uh, let alone the, the biblical and Christian early sources. So. All right, we'll right. stop there and like to finish up the cup. Make sure don't go looking for another cup. I think we're fresh out of cups. Uh, but if you'd like to recover, fill the cups you've got.